Okay. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he is one year from the cross. We've got a long way to go in John's gospel, but in real time, Jesus is almost to the day exactly one year from when he will be dying on a cross. It's Passover time. So time is short. And every word that Jesus is speaking is paying its way. And so he's not hiding the fine print. He's not giving the mic to the fast-talking guy. He's being real upfront and truthfully and lovingly telling people, this is what it really means to follow me. This is what believing in Jesus that John continually does, this is what it actually means. When, when we read John's gospel, that's what he's seeking to do. When, when he writes to us, he's bringing us again and again and again to Jesus and asking us, how are you going to respond? Are you in or are you out? Now, whenever we're making major decisions, we, there's always a tension that we feel. So I'm thinking of buying this house. Can I really afford it? Do I really like it? Do I really want to live here? Like, is this where I want to raise my family? Or, I really like this guy, but do I want to spend the rest of my life with him? Or, I'm thinking of making this career change, but do I want to leave the stability of my current position? You feel the tension in major decisions, right? Here's the tension in John 6. I'm thinking of following Jesus, but he's telling me things that I don't want to hear. I'm thinking of becoming a follower of Jesus, of continuing on this road of discipleship, but I don't like what he's saying to me right now. Am I in or am I out? That's what John 6 is concluding with. So we're going to look now. What John does is at the end of this chapter, he gives us the response to that question from three different groups of people. The Jews, the disciples, and the twelve. That's how we're going to look at this this morning. Okay, Those are the three responses to am I in or am I out on Jesus? That's what John gives to us. So let's look at each of them together right now. First, the Jews. Verse 52. Jesus is in the synagogue, right? We just read that. They're at Capernaum and they're in the synagogue, just like we're doing here. They've gathered to hear and talk about the word of God. So the Jews, in this sense, were likely the people that were gathered, or at the very least, the, the leaders of that synagogue, the Jewish leaders of the synagogue. And what are they doing? What does the text say? They're arguing. They're, they're complaining. They're in this heated debate. Look back up at verse 41. What are they doing in verse 41? The Jews are what? Grumbling. So this is John's not-so-subtle way of saying not much has really changed. The Jews, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, when Moses was trying to lead them and his brother Aaron was trying to lead them, the Jews grumbled and complained against Moses and against Aaron. And John's saying they're doing the same thing here. God provided for the Jewish people through the manna in the Old Testament. And when he provided what he did for them, they didn't like it. 
They didn't like it then, and they don't like it now. Jesus, the new Moses, the better Moses, has come. And God, in Jesus, has provided for his people once again. And they didn't like it then, and they don't like it now. John's saying, not much has changed. Which means that, why are they having such a hard time with what Jesus is saying? What's really undergirding the difficulty of what he's saying to them? It's a matter of unbelief. That's John's point. Unbelief is a settled distrust of who God is and what he's done. It's a settled distrust of who God is, and it's also a wrong interpretation of what he's done. So let's illustrate. Going back to the people of Israel, listen to what they say in the desert after God delivered them from slavery. Exodus 16. The whole congregation of people, this is the Jewish people, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and they said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate the bread to the full, for you, Moses and Aaron, you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is talking to the next generation of Israelites, he says, remember when we were about to go into the promised land. God was giving you this land. You murmured. You argued in your tents. You disputed in your tents and you said, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Do you see what unbelief is doing here? Unbelief is the settled disposition of one's heart that says, I see what God's doing and he's done me wrong. And there's no way I'm going to trust in him. Now, let's just be clear, okay? Doubt and unbelief are not simultaneously happening together. They're not, they're not the same thing. Doubt is something that I don't know any Christian that doesn't struggle with doubt. And my new friend, Shelby, is here somewhere. He's written a whole book on this. And, and I'm not getting a cut of a sale, so go buy the book. But he's talking about doubt in that book. Doubt and unbelief are not interchangeable completely. Doubt is when I read God's word, and it says and promises and, and communicates these amazing truths. But when I read God's word and then I look at the realities of my life or this world, this, sometimes they don't line up. Like read the book of the Psalms. They're constantly crying out to say, God, you've said this, or God, you've promised that, or God, you said you would do this. But look at my situations. These things don't seem to line up. Where are you? How long is this going to take? I don't know if I can keep going. See, doubt is a humble but honest response that says to God, God, I, I believe what you say, but my experience is something different. And I'm really struggling with that. Christians oftentimes struggle with doubt. That's not unbelief. Unbelief is, oh, I see what's going on. I know what's happening. 
I've judged the situation and I've come to my decision. You've done me wrong, God, and there ain't no way I'm trusting in you. Do you see the difference? That's unbelief and that's what's operating in the hearts of these Jews. And it's not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. It's a Christian problem. That's why the book of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters, take heart, lest there be in any one of you, Christians, an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to turn away from the living God. Unbelief is a problem. That's why the Jews don't like what Jesus has to say. Now, coupled with their unbelief, or maybe we can say an expression of their unbelief, is this wooden, literal translation of what Jesus is saying. And it happens a lot in the book of John. See, Jesus is a masterful teacher. Think about any good teacher you've ever had. What do they do? They take like really complex and difficult things to understand, and they use simple ways of explaining it to you. So you get it. Jesus is excellent at this. So he takes physical realities, things like bread, and he uses material, physical things that we can understand, and he says, the kingdom of God is like this, or spiritual truths are like that. He's taking things that are real and comprehensible to us, things that we can easily understand, and he's saying, I'm going to use this to teach you a deeper spiritual truth. That's what he does over and over again. So Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Woman at the well, I'll give you living water. Here, I'm the bread of life. And in every one of those situations, the typical response is the same thing here. It's a literal wooden translation. It's kind of like that eye roll, like, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Go back into my mother's womb? Jesus, what are you talking about? The well's deep. You got, even, you got no bucket. What are you talking about, living water? Come on. And here... Eat your flesh? Drink your blood? I am out on Jesus. He's teaching weird cannibalistic stuff. I'm out on him. Friends, Jesus is not teaching cannibalism here. Christianity is not a cannibalistic religion. It's not what he's talking about. How do we know? Well, look at your Bibles. In verse 40, look at what Jesus says. The sentence structure in verse 40 is exactly the same as it is in verse 54. In verse 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now go down to 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of him. No, I'm sorry, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is simply extending the metaphor. He's saying the same thing. So, looks on and believes in, in verse 40, becomes, feeds on and drinks in verse 54, and the result is the same. I'll raise him up on the last day. He's just ex extending the metaphor. He's saying the same thing. If we think carefully about what Jesus is saying, track with me here, okay? If we think carefully, what Jesus is simply saying is in the same way that if we get out some bread and we get out some water and we put them on the table, they do nothing for you if you leave them on the table. In order for bread 
to satisfy your hunger, in order for drink to quench your thirst, what do you got to do? You got to take it in. And in the same way, you have to personally appropriate me, Jesus. So you can't say, I'm glad that the Jesus thing and the church thing and the Bible thing, I'm glad that's working out for you. That's not for me. I'm glad that Christianity and faith in the Son of God and the death of Christ for your sins, I'm glad that that's working for you. But I'm choosing a different way to live my life and a different path to God. That's not true belief. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. Believe in Jesus. What does that mean? It's a specific and personal appropriation of him. It's Jesus. I need you. I need to take you in. My parents' faith won't save me. My pastor's faith won't save me. My grandparent or some good friend that I know that's a Christian, their faith won't save me. Jesus is saying in order to have true belief in me, you personally have to take me in. Now remember, Jesus hasn't died yet. So the people that he's talking to here don't know that he's going to suffer and die on a cross. But Jesus knows that. He says he's going to give his life as the flesh, going to give his flesh for the life of the world. So Jesus knows about the cross. So if we understand this further, this is what this means. We know that what Jesus has in mind here is it's a personal appropriation. It's a personal trust in the fact that the Son of God loved me. He lived the life that I could not live. And then he went to the cross to die the penalty that I deserve to die for my sin. And then he rose again. It's personally understanding the gospel. Jesus loved me. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. And I personally believe that's for me. That truth is for me. I've got to take that in. That's what faith, true faith is. And no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, that truth has always been offensive. Always. Because none of us like to be told that we're wrong. If we think about the cross realistically, the worst evaluation on mankind that God Almighty can ever give is shown to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the most critical and it is the most severe evaluation of humankind that God has ever given. On the cross, God says, you are so bad. You're so evil. You're so rebellious that only the death of my perfect and sinless son and his blood shed on your behalf, that's the only thing that'll make you clean. You're so bad that that's what it takes. But that's not all that true belief hears. True belief hears. You're so bad that the Son of God had to die for you, but you are so loved that I willingly gave him for you. You're so bad that the blood of Jesus, the spotless, blameless Son of God, had to be shed to make you clean, but you're so loved that I willingly 
and gladly gave him to cleanse you and to save you and to make you my child. That's what the gospel is. It's simultaneously the worst and the best news that we can ever hear. I'm so bad that I can't save myself and I'm so loved that God gladly saved me in Jesus Christ, in his death for me and in his resurrection. See, when, when, you, when you fail to deal with the reality of sin, then Jesus really is just a nicety that you can do with or without. Right? If I'm really following Jesus because he's filling my belly, or I'm really following Jesus because I like what he tells me, well, the moment he's not giving me free food and not telling me what I want to hear, well, then I'm out on him. I don't need him. And it always reminds me, this has always stuck with me. Uh, a street evangelist years ago gave this illustration. It's always stuck with me. He said, it's kind of like this. If you, if you tell people, as you're telling them about Jesus, that if you come to Jesus, you'll have peace and you'll have joy and you'll have power, which all are true. But if that's all that you ever say, he says, it's like a stewardess on a plane giving a passenger a backpack, a parachute. So picture yourself on a plane flying through the air and the stewardess gives you a parachute backpack and says, here, take this. This will make your flight a lot more comfortable. Kids, you guys are in here. Are you listening? Do you know what it feels like to wear a backpack and sit on a chair for a long time? Is that comfortable? No way. Wearing a big bulky backpack on a chair and trying to stretch out and be comfortable is horrible. So if the guy says, wait a second, stewardess, you said this was going to make my flight more enjoyable. You're a liar. This thing's horrible. Get this off of me. Take it away. Give it to some other person. I don't want it. But kids, what if she said, the plane that we're riding in, 30,000 feet up in the air, is going down. The engines are going to cut out. And only people with this parachute are going to live. Everyone else is going to die. I'm not taking that parachute out for anything. I'm hanging on to that thing, and I don't care how comfortable I am. This is a matter of life and death. That's why Jesus is not afraid to offend people with the truth. He's not messing around here. Belief in Christ is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And if we're winning to Christ or if we're following Christ because all he ever does is make me happy, the moment he doesn't make me happy, I'm going somewhere else and to someone else who will. But I'm telling you, the Bible is telling us, and true Christians, true belief is this, the plain folks is going down. One out of every one person dies. That's 100%. And when we stand before the God who created us in his image, we're going to have to give an account for how we lived this life. Every one of us is going to have to do that. And if you don't have Jesus and his death on the cross and his righteousness that he gives to you freely as a gift, if you don't have that, you will not stand on the day of judgment. You will perish in eternal hell. 
Jesus is not messing around. That's why he's not afraid to offend with the truth because it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. He says, I'm here for you. Believe in me. Follow me. Personally take me in. If you do, you will have everlasting life. The day of judgment does not have to be something you dread. You can have confidence and peace because I have given you everything you need to stand on that day. And I love you. The Jews were not interested. When they came to this point of decision, they said, as far as Jesus concerns, we're out. How about you? John's calling us to true faith in Jesus Christ. Are we in or are we out? Let's look at the disciples now. That's how the Jews responded. They were out on Jesus. How do the disciples respond? Verse 60. John uses the word disciple interchangeably. Sometimes he uses it just to describe people who are willing to affiliate with Jesus. They're they're physically willing to follow him around. They're, They're associating with him. They're okay with calling him a a teacher. And so when they say, these disciples, that this is a hard saying, they're not saying it's hard to understand. They're saying, you're offending us, Jesus. You're telling us things that we don't want to hear. Now, stories in the Bible, when we read Bible stories, they're narratives, right? And one of the ways that Bible stories work is they invite us to come into the story. That's how stories always work. When you hear the story, you picture things. You picture yourself there. If you're in the story with Jesus right now, I think about this often. If you're the tour manager, what are you saying to Jesus right now? Like, hey, man, let's just play it cool, right? We've got all these people here. Just play it cool, Jesus. Like, don't you want them to believe in you? Don't you want them to have eternal life? Don't say things that are going to push them away. Say things that are going to draw them to you. Don't you want them to believe, Jesus? To which I think Jesus would say, yes, I do. But let's just be really clear on exactly what believing in me means. He's not hiding the fine print. He's saying, let's be clear what believe means. And he says, if you're offended with all this talk about me being the bread of life, things are going to get a lot harder for you. If you're offended by this teaching and you don't like what I'm saying now, then what are we going to do a year from now? Well, what I'm, ta- what I'm calling you to is to believe in a, a bloody Roman cross where a crucified Messiah is going to suffer and die like a criminal. And then God is going to vindicate him, but not for three days. And then he's going to arrive and ascend to where he was before. What are you going to do then? And the road to my ascension goes through the cross, which means that I'm willingly embracing a life of sacrifice and deep humiliation before I receive my vindication. 
And what Jesus is saying to us is, are you okay with that? That's the life of a disciple. The life of following Jesus is a life of humiliation, sometimes suffering, and delayed gratification. Are you okay with that? The life of a disciple and true faith in him means that we keep on trying to lean into his word even when the majority of people dismiss it. The life of a disciple and true faith in Jesus means we willingly join ourselves with a small, oftentimes, especially in other parts of the world, ostracized group of people that seem to the majority world completely nuts and are persecuted. Are you willing to join yourself to a small group of followers and believe in me even if it means persecution and death? Following Jesus means the people that are closest to you, that are in the inner circle, they are going to hurt you. Some of them who claim to follow me are going to eventually deny me, and as they reject Christ, they're going to reject you, and guess what? That type of rejection from, from friends and from people that you've served Christ with and people that you've called brother and sister, when they leave, that type of pain hurts. Are you ready for that? Jesus said, I'm going to embrace my cross before I embrace my crown. And if you're going to follow me, that's exactly the way you're going to have to live. Are you okay with that? He's not trying to win a popularity contest. This is a moment of decision. And he's a year from the cross and he's saying to his followers, discipleship is hard. It's going to cost you. Are you in or are you out? Now at this point, if you're really listening, you might hear me saying, oh, so I get it. Christianity is only for the rugged then. Christianity is only for people who are like real self-discipline and willing to endure trial and brave and courageous. That's the kind of people who make the cut. Nope. That's not what I'm saying and infinitely more important, that's not what Jesus is saying. The spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Nobody makes the cut. Nobody. In the same way that God Almighty granted us physical life, God in Genesis 1 breathes life into the world. That's why we're living. That's why we're breathing. That's why we live the lives that we live. In the same way that God Almighty gave us physical life, only that same God can give us spiritual life. And that's an incredibly offensive message. That's a hard sell. Like, let's be honest. Especially in this area. We live in a well-educated, hard-working, successful area. Try telling your successful, hard-working, well-educated, I've gone through the school of hard knocks and now I'm, I'm enjoying the fruits of my life. Try telling them you can't do this. This is a hard sell. Christianity is you cannot do this. 
What I'm requiring of you and what I'm commanding you, you cannot do on your own. I've told you this story. I think I have. Maybe I haven't. And if I have, if I've forgotten, you definitely have. As a 10-year-old boy, I went to a place near Buffalo called Kissing Bridge. It's this little ski resort. Resort is not the right word. It's a hill with some snow on it. And I didn't know how to ski. And so Danny Dubell, my next-door neighbor, invited me to go along, and so I did. But for whatever reason, like we didn't choose to ski or learn how to ski, we brought our sleds along with us. And so while the family went and skied that day, Danny and I decided that we were going to sled. So we found a little hill and went for it. I went first. And the hill went right down into a pond. You know how the story goes, right? So I go first, and I slide out onto the ice and go further out and whoosh, right through the ice. So now if, we were to, if I were to take you guys there today, we'd probably look at the pond and kind of laugh. Like it's not big. It's probably not even that deep. But as a 10-year-old boy that just went through the ice, that was pretty serious. And there was this drainage pipe. I still can remember it, this drainage pipe. And I started to feel like my legs, that, you know that slow pull of a current? Not fast, but slow enough. And guys, I'm telling you, that pipe might as well have been the hole to the center of the earth. And I was going that way as a 10-year-old boy. And my friend Danny goes to get help. So now I'm all alone in the freezing cold water thinking that I'm going to the darkest, deepest places of the world and dying there. Finally, which seemed like forever, the guy comes back and he's standing, you know, the the ski patrol, red coat. It was great sight. And so he's standing on the shore. Jason, it's okay. We've been trained for this. I can rescue you. Here's what they taught us. We help those who help themselves. All, I have voice, warm blankets. I've got dry clothes. I've got hot chocolate. All you have to do is get yourself out and come over here onto shore and it's all yours. That's not what he said. He didn't say anything. He came out as far on the ice as he could. He threw me something and I grabbed hold of it. And then he yanked me out. He saved me. Now, wouldn't it have been odd if I got to shore and said, man, did you you see how I like tucked that thing under my arms just right? Did you see how tightly I was hanging on to that rope? How limp I went so that you can just drag me across the ice? No. I said, thank you. I was going down. I was going down to that pipe. I was going down to death and you came into my life and you saved me. Thank you. That's what Christianity is, friends. Jesus came. The only thing that I did in that story was get myself in the pond. Jesus got you out. Now, some of us, and whether we're Christian or not, some of us are in some ponds right now, some icy cold ponds. 
And life is hard right now as Christians. Life is hard for you as a Christian. The words that offended these people, if you think about them rightly, are the most sweetest and assuring words. Because this is what it means. When you're stuck in that pond and when discipleship is hard and, and you're, you're trying to follow Jesus but you're weary and you're tired and you feel confused and you feel disillusioned and you want to give up. Let's be honest. If our faith in those moments especially is dependent on how tightly I'm hanging on to Jesus, I don't have a lot of confidence in that, guys. If my faith, if my making it to the end with Jesus has to do with how tightly I'm holding on to him, I'm in trouble. But what this truth teaches is that the Father has drawn us to himself. He has opened our ears when Jesus speaks the truth of my death in your place, my resurrection for your life. And the Spirit of God takes those truths and makes them alive in our hearts such that we have the ability and the faith and the desire to now come to Christ and believe and be saved. All of that, the Father and the Son and the Spirit saving you, that's the same God that sustains you in the trial. And if you believe that, that's what's going to get you through. So to my weary, fellow, discouraged, beat up and worn down friends and Christian followers, keep going. Because it's not you. God has saved you. God will sustain you and God will bring you all the way home. That's what true faith believes. Personally taking Christ in, a total reliance on God, that was not a belief that the disciples were interested in. Verse 66, many turned back and no longer walked with him. The Jews are out on Jesus. The disciples are out on Jesus. Where are you at? How about the twelve? Notice that chapter 6 starts out with thousands and thousands of people. Now we're down to 12 individuals. The road of discipleship is hard, the path is narrow, and few that be that find it. That's what Jesus said. And even among the 12, Jesus is calling them to make a decision. This is a point of decision. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not looking for sympathy here. This isn't Jesus being like, oh, no, man. Like, all these people are taken off. Like, you guys are my buddies. You're not going too, are you? That's not what he's saying. This question that he's about to ask them is for their benefit, not for his. He already knows what's going to happen. He's not surprised by the crowds leading. Over and over in John, they... John tells us Jesus knew things that nobody else knew. Jesus is not surprised that the crowds are leaving. So he's asking them this question for their sake, not for his. Do you want to go away as well? Now, the past couple of weeks, we have heard Jesus asking us questions and 
Isaac said it, and Kenny said it, and I'm going to say it again today. Don't answer that question too quickly. Don't assume, of course I don't want to leave Jesus. Why are you even asking me that? Here's what's loaded in that question. Christian, Jesus oftentimes will ask you probing questions. This is how he tests our faith. Are you in this for the right reason? Or are you in this just for the show? Are you in this just because it's the happening thing? Are you in this because this is where lots of people are? Christian, are you ready to relinquish control, complete control of your life to me? Are you ready to give me control of your life even when I tell you to do things that you don't agree with? Even when I call you to do things that you can't understand? Are you ready to relinquish total control to me or do you still believe that you're the one ultimately that holds the reins in your life? Christian, will you take me in all of me? Or will you pick and choose the things from my word that you want and like and spit out what you don't want and don't like? That's what's loaded in the question. Do you want to go away as well? And if I'm honest, which your pastor should be, my response to that question sometime is, yes, Jesus. I actually would. I actually would like to go the way of the crowds. I'd actually like to leave too. Because this road that we're walking on of discipleship and the hardship that you're calling me to walk through, I'd be okay if I didn't have to deal with that anymore. I'd be okay if life was like I can imagine it being, like I see other friends that I have living apart from you and they seem super happy and they get to do on Sundays whatever they want to do. They don't have to do the things that I have to do. I'd actually like to live that way. Yeah, Jesus, I think I would actually like to go. When things are hard, friends, if you don't wrestle, true belief has to really wrestle with this question. And, and if you're not wrestling with it, then thank God, you are more godly than I am. My guess is that eventually you will get to that point where you're going to have to answer that question yourself. Life for you as a Christian is going to get really hard, and you're going to hear Jesus say, do you want to leave as well? Because this is the road that I'm calling you to walk on. Are you in or are you out? True belief wrestles and then by the grace of God comes to where Peter comes. Lord, where else am I going to go? To whom am I going to turn? Am I going to turn to my favorite politician? Am I going to turn to my favorite musician? Am I going to turn to some financial guru who's going to teach me how to build my wealth and leave my legacy to my family? Like, whose words am I going to turn to? Where am I going to go? I can't go there. 
And many people do. But when I go there, I don't hear the words of eternal life. I only find them in Jesus. When Jesus speaks to me, when he speaks to you through this book, and he says, I will give you eternal life, that's the only place, friends, that you're ever going to hear that word and for it to be 100% true. When the Father tells you that he's keeping you all the way to the end, you're never going to hear that word from anybody else and for it to be 100% true. And when the Spirit of God that lives within you testifies to you that you are a son or a daughter of God, it's only then that you will feel like, I'm home. I'm home. This is where I belong. This is the one I was made to be with. This was the one who satisfies my deepest soul desire. And he's the one that delivered me from the very thing that keeps me from being satisfied in him as my soul desire. He paid for my sin. He gave me his righteousness. He's made me his child. There's nowhere else that I can go. Leaving that is not an option. Where are we going to go? In you, and in you alone, Jesus, I find the words of eternal life. So let me appeal to you. Some of you may be, like Andrea said earlier, some of you may be coming to a point in your life where you're really sensing, like, I think God's speaking to me, and I'm seeing my sin, and I'm seeing what Jesus is calling me to, and you're at this point. Or maybe you're like me, a weary Christian, and you still hear Jesus inviting you to walk on the road of discipleship. Can I appeal to you either way, and anybody in between? Follow him. What you will hear is not work harder, Try a little bit more. What you will hear is, I am. Don't be afraid. I'm with you and I will save you. Just believe. That is how we have eternal life. I'll ask the band to return. The Jews said they were out on Jesus. The disciples said they were out on Jesus. Judas will say, I'm out on Jesus. But all true Christians will never leave. Never. And the reason why we will not leave does not reside in us. The reason we will not leave is because Jesus must be obedient to his Father. Don't miss this. This is very important. The reason why you will make it as a Christian is because Jesus must, he must, he must be obedient to the Father. It is the Father's will that I lose none of whom he has given to me. So if you lose, if Jesus lets go of you, he's disobedient to God the Father. And that ain't ever going to happen. I will lose none of all who the Father has given to me. You're going to make it to the end because Jesus promises and he must keep you to himself. Let's worship him and let's pray to him.